afternoon. We're in the book of 2 Timothy. We're beginning that today. If you're a guest with us, welcome. My name is Al. I'm one of the pastors here. If you need a Bible, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will, will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Uh, so take it, keep it, read it. If you need one, just raise your hand. Our ushers will bring you one. 2 Timothy. We had just a few weeks ago finished 1 Timothy. Now we're moving into the second book the Apostle Paul has written to his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy. And so today is going to be uh, somewhat of an intro to 2 Timothy. I want to give us a framework to think about, or uh, how to think about the, the book we're, we're studying. Uh, but it is the same author, the Apostle Paul, who's, who's writing. And he's, it's what's interesting about this book, 2 Timothy, it's his last letter that he will write in the New Testament. The last letter, period. Not just his last letter to Timothy, but his last letter, period. He will soon, after writing this letter, uh, be executed uh, and murdered for, for being a Christian. That's, what, that's how his, his life ends. He's a faithful follower of Jesus uh, all the way to the end. It didn't start that way. We'll talk about that as we go. Uh, he was not always uh, a Jesus-loving Bible teacher, uh, but he became one through faith in, in the resurrected Jesus. And then he, he devoted his life to, to preaching the Bible, to, to planting churches, to writing books of the Bible. This, is, this was the Apostle Paul. Uh, but what's also interesting about this book is that it's right before, it's written right before uh, the persecution uh, by Nero on the, on the, the Christian world. The, the, the widespread Christian world at the time is about to be persecuted with some of the most severe persecution it's experienced. And so Paul is writing, and not only is he going to be one of the first to die for the faith, but he's, it's going to continue. He's going to be like a domino, and others are going to have to defend the faith and ultimately give their life uh, for the faith. And so uh, Paul is writing uh, with a sense of urgency to Timothy. He's writing with a, uh, a call to, for him to persevere, to endure, to keep going, uh, because he's going to face oppositions. If you remember in our study through 1 Timothy, he's already facing opposition to false teachers uh, and, and, and church leadership and, and issues that are, that are happening around him. And so this is his last letter. And so let's go ahead and open it, uh, 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 2. We're going we're gonna to spend an extensive amount of time today just studying, like a sharp focus on this introduction. Uh, it, typically when we read introductions, of books of the Bible, we just get through the introduction, okay, he said hello, his name, and, uh, and, and now let's move on to the, the good stuff. There's so much good stuff, if you will, uh, in this introduction that we're going to take some time to sharpen our focus on that. And so he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, a lot there, uh, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord and Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want you to think this letter he's writing, he says he's his beloved child. He's writing to it like a father would his son. This is the, the last letter he's, he, he's writing. So think about these are the parting words of a father to his son. He's going to want him to, the big themes that we're going to see is to continue this legacy that we're going to see that was passed down from his, his grandmother to his mother to himself. Additionally, we're going to see that there's going to be this press to continue to fulfill the mission. The mission that began with Jesus. The mission that God promised that dates back all the way to Genesis 3. When he said there would be a, a Savior coming to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. That's Jesus. His mission is continuing into Paul's day, into our day. And so Paul is calling Timothy to do what Paul has already done. Complete the race finish the job, keep going. And so he appeals to him first as an apostle. 
Paul an apostle. What an apostle is briefly, uh, we went into a little bit more in depth in First Timothy, but uh, the apostle, an apostle is a, a, is a this is what an apostle is, they, they saw the resurrected Jesus. If you didn't see the resurrected Jesus, you can't be a, a New Testament apostle. So that means that there's no more apostles like Paul, period. Additionally, he wrote books of the Bible. There's no more people writing books of the Bible. If you meet anyone, please, if you meet anyone who's writing new books of the Bible, run. Don't discuss don't debate. Don't hang out with them. Run from them. If they're like, I, I just, I've met people. They, they have some additions that they said God told them to. I'll tell you this, they, God did not. The same serpent that, you know, talked to Eve, uh, maybe talking, uh, whispering in, in their ears. So no more books in the Bible. The canon is closed. The books have been written. Uh, the, all those apostles who've seen Jesus resurrected, uh, now uh, they're now seeing Jesus in their resurrection. Their, their new life in uh, heaven with the Lord Jesus face to face, waiting on the resurrected bodies. But anyway, that's there's no the office of apostle has ceased, but the gift of apostleship continues. So we'll see throughout the New Testament that there's uh, there's this gift of apostleship that's not the office of apostleship. So apostle ship the gift is, is the, the act of starting new things, especially new works, new ministries, starting uh, works. So so Paul did that. Not only did he have the gift, but he had the, the office. He was a church planting uh, pastor. That's what he was. And so he's writing to Timothy, the pastor of this young church. And so this, this letter that we're reading is literally part of the, the canon. It's part of the Bible. Um, but, but, but the question you and I need to ask is, why should we listen to this guy? Why should we listen? Some of you, uh, you're not familiar with the Bible. You're not, you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul. You're not familiar with the, the, the writings of the Scriptures. You're like, okay, why should I listen to this guy? I, I get it. A lot of people, you know, listen to him. But why should I? Why should we listen to the Apostle Paul? Number one, he says he's writing not just as an Apostle of Jesus Christ, but by the will of God. He is writing by the will of God. God wants to speak to us. God wants to speak to Timothy. He is writing with this importance that God is speaking through the Apostle Paul to Timothy and now to us. That's the first reason. Well, some of you are like, well, I don't not necessarily like, okay, a lot of people, you know, might claim to speak about God, but why this guy? Well, additionally, he says that he's writing by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He's not writing on his own authority. He's writing because Jesus saved him. He's writing because Jesus gave him new life. This, this promise of life began in Genesis chapter 3. And I've already mentioned it, that when, when God told Adam and Eve that through the, the, the seed of the woman would become a savior, one that would crush the head of the serpent Satan. Abraham is then told that it's going to be that, that seed is going to come through his line, legacy, and lineage. Ultimately, we see it fully fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And that's what he's talking about. According to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, God, by the will of God, has promised that there be a Savior, and he dates that back to the beginning of creation. We're talking the promise that was made when there was two people on earth. The promise that was made that would be fulfilled and it has been fulfilled. So he's not writing as one who's, who is guessing about who Jesus is. He's writing as one who has seen God fulfill his promises. God is trustworthy. So he's writing by the will of God. God is trustworthy. Additionally, he's trustworthy in that he's given us his son. The promise 
the promised son that the whole scriptures speak to. And this son, Jesus, he says, gives life. A promise to give life. Here's the reality. Every single one of you in here, every single person who's ever lived, breathed, or walked on planet Earth has inherited from Adam and Eve uh, sin. It, we were sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice, meaning we inherited it from our forefathers, but we continue and, and persist in doing it. Sin is rebellion against God. It's, 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 we sin in our mind, we sin in our emotions, we sin in our actions. Sin is deviating from the will of God. Deviating from the law of God. Deviating from what God has said is good. And so God's, God has saved us through Jesus. He's offered salvation through Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is not just uh, one who's, who is telling of this promise. He's one who's experienced this promise. This is the third reason why he's trustworthy. The Apostle Paul was a Christian killer. See, it's likely, I'm probably highly likely, in this room that none of you that's your story that you were a christian killer if it is and you you've been converted like the apostle Paul, thank god for you and let's hear your testimony uh, after service but uh here here the apostle paul is he he was on a mission before he met jesus before he got saved to persecute and kill christians that was his job that's what he was doing and then jesus intervened in his life literally saved him revealed himself to him and then the Apostle Paul was forever and always, from that point forward and forevermore, changed. He's not just talking about this will of God. He's not just talking about this promise that began even in the, the first chapters of Genesis. He's not just talking about what he's seen or heard. He's talking about, additionally, the, the man Jesus Christ who has saved him. He has his own testimony. He went from Christian killer to church planting pastor. You read through the New Testament that even the first church, they were worried like, okay, we saw him killing Christians. Now he's a Christian. We got to do our due diligence, make sure he's legit. Make sure he's not coming in and acting like he's a Christian just so he can, you know, take one for the other team. That's not what he was doing. They felt he was legit. He was a legitimate Christian. Because Jesus saved him. If you know, love, and trust Jesus, that's your story. You've been saved. But Jesus, you've been given the promise of life. This, this is what it means to be a Christian, that you are alive. How do you see this? You are alive. You are living. When you encounter other people in the world, you are, you are bringing life to those moments, to those situations, to those relationships. Life. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We've been sent, Paul's been sent to, to, to give life, and life comes through Jesus. He says next, he says, Timothy's his beloved child. It's his beloved child. Paul didn't have any biological kids, I mean, no. Uh, but, but Timothy has become like a child to him, like a, a son in the faith. And so Paul's been investing in him. He's been loving him. He's been spending time with him like a father would a son, and now he's writing him letters to encourage him, to give him direction. Not just as a father, but as someone as a mentor, as a pastor, as a leader, uh, who, who, who he's going to pass the, the baton off to so T Timothy would continue to do what Paul has already done, finish well. So this is what we, we call in the church discipleship. It began with Jesus when he said, uh, he told, tells us to go make disciples. He says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. 
That means if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you don't love and trust Jesus, you're a disciple, and you're, and you're to continue to obey or learn obedience through the, the Word of God until Jesus returns. Until He returns. And so discipleship is a type of spiritual parenting. And the type of spiritual parent, he is, he is being to Timothy. He says this, it's, it's, it's one of grace, mercy, and peace. He says to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace. He wants to give him something. He wants to give him grace. He wants to give him mercy. He wants to give him peace, but not from himself. See, he's not, this isn't a, a, a spiritual father going, I have a lot of grace and mercy and peace I want to give to you. I've stored it up. Here's your inheritance, Timothy. I've done a really good job of, of being gracious towards you. I just want to you know, deposit it into you. He says, no, this grace, mercy, and peace is from God, who is a father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's from God, the Father. God was a father. Christ Jesus was a king, the Lord, our Lord. This is grace, mercy, and peace from the Father through God, King Jesus, the Son. Grace, grace is unmerited favor. See, grace is, sometimes we get mercy and grace blended. Grace is, is, is receiving something you did not earn. It's something you are getting. Grace is something extended to you that you did not earn. Mercy is not getting what you did earn, but you did deserve. So without, in our sin, we deserved death. We deserved condemnation. We deserved wrath. But God, through Jesus Christ, has given us grace. He's given us unmerited, undeserved favor. And he's withheld from us what we did deserve, wrath. So he's both gracious and merciful. He's extended grace, but he's also extended mercy. It's one thing to be forgiven, but it's another thing to be called righteous. God has done what we cannot do in ourselves. Not only extending us grace and mercy, but then also giving us peace. This is this is a restored wholeness. This isn't some hippie thing that you just, you know, sit around and, you know, whatever. And just, you're just, you're just zen. It's not what he is. It's not like, oh, you have peace. It means you're just, yeah, everything's cool, dude. Just, I'm not really, it's just, yeah, I'm not for any before violence. I'm just for peace. That's not what he's saying. He's like, this peace is a, it's literally wholeness. This is this, the Old Testament would refer to it as shalom, this, this wholeness being restored back to, to who we were created to be. So we are dead in our sin, but because of grace and mercy, we've been, uh, through Jesus, we can now have peace. First, peace with God. We have peace with God. And then peace that can rule our life. The peace of God that can rule our life, that can rule our relationships. Meaning now we have power, the, 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 the power of peace that can rule and affect our real relationships. Those that, that we have strife with, those that we encounter difficulty with. We have the power because of God's unmerited uh, favor, grace, and his unending mercy. Not bestowing on us punishment that we deserve has, allowed, has restored us to the Father. We've been made right with God. And now that extends into our relationships. Now we can be messengers of reconciliation to any people we encounter. Moreover, we can have that same peace guard our hearts and minds no matter what our circumstances. So much packed into this, this simple statement of 
Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace. This isn't just three words that he just throws out there as, you know, an introductory to an email. It's not like he's, you know, copy-pasting his, his emails. Every, everybody goes, he's like, I just say this at the beginning. Grace, mercy, and peace to everybody. He's looking at Timothy, his child of the faith. It's his last letter to him. He's going to die. He's in prison. He's like, I want to I bestow upon you, son, blessing, grace, mercy, and peace. This is like we saw in Genesis when the patriarch was dying. He wanted to lay hands on his sons and grandsons and bless them. That's what Paul's doing. He's not able to be with him, so he's writing this letter to him. Wanting to extend grace, mercy, and peace. Why? Because Timothy needs grace. He needs continual grace. You and I need continual grace. God's grace abounds. God's grace is unending. God's favor, our God's forgiveness does not cease. God doesn't just save us through Jesus once from our sins. And then if you sin again, you know, no more grace, no more mercy. His grace is unending. His mercy is unending. And his peace is ever reigning. So Timothy needs this, not just this reminder, but he needs this actually experienced in real life. He needs this blessing from his father to him, to, to, to endure in this ministry. So let me ask you, do you know these things for yourself? Do you know grace? If you don't extend grace often, frequently, you probably aren't very good at receiving it yourself. The gracious man, the gracious woman is one who has, who sees the length, the depth that Jesus went to save. Sees the amount of grace that has been extended to them. And therefore are gracious. Same thing with mercy. The more you understand the length that Jesus went to save you or, or what you deserve that was withheld from you, how much mercy Jesus has had on you, Given. See, if you don't find yourself to be a gracious person or a merciful person, the question is not, or the, the, the question you shouldn't ask, what do I need to do to, to make people think I'm more gracious and more merciful? What do I got to do? I don't do anything. What you need to do is, is understand the link that Jesus went to save you. How messed up you actually are. How much mercy you really needed. That the cross of Christ was not just something that happened in history that, that helped some people out. It's not a good story to remind, to remember and go, you know, you're going through hard times, just remember Jesus and you can get through the hard times. There are antidotes for, 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 you know, health and wealth and, you know, pick yourself up on your bootstraps and endure and, you know, be a good, good person. Jesus was brutally murdered and killed because of you. Because of your sin. And mine. And everyone else's. But if you, if you think that it's really the sins of everyone else that hung Jesus on a cross, then you missed it. It was our sin that held him there. Literally, think about the hands that were pierced on the cross. Literally, it's your sin pressing him, holding him on the cross. It's your sin brutally causing him to be suffocated to bleed out, to die. That was what we deserved. It's 
when you see mercy, you go, no, I, I didn't receive that at all. I received forgiveness. I received salvation. I received the promise of life. You can marvel at that mercy and therefore extend it. Additionally, God doesn't just want us to know his mercy and grace, but he wants us to extend it. And so what God is going to do is work in and through the Apostle Paul. And we're working in the Apostle Paul and then work through him to Timothy. And God wants to work in you and then work through you. God is not done with you. No matter who you are, God is not done with you. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can even understand or imagine what God has prepared for those who love you. You love Jesus? Keep pressing forward. God is not done. God is not done. Let the mercy and grace of Jesus change you and we're in and through you. He continues and says, in verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve. That word means worship. It, it means worship, whom I serve. We've, we talk about it frequently. Worship is both adoration, it's, it's with our emotions, and, and, and it's with our heart, but it's also action word serve here. He's saying, I, I think God whom I serve, whom I worship, I, I, he's worshiping with his life, with, his, with his, his physical life. He serves Jesus. He serves at the pleasure of King Jesus. I think God whom I serve or worship as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your, your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. In his introduction, Paul is not just wanting to extend mercy and grace and peace to Timothy, but he wants to remind him of some things. He first wants to remind him of the God that Paul worships. He says, I thank God whom I serve or worship as did my ancestors. Paul's going to, he's going to connect his legacy and his ancestry, and then he's going to connect to connect Timothy's. See, Paul was a Jew. He was a Hebrew man. His legacy dated back all the way to Abraham, all the way to Abraham. When God showed up to a pagan man named Abram and said, I'm going to call you Abram, and I'm going to make you, through your descendants, are going to be, your descendants will be many nations, and through your descendant, through your, your this seed of your womb, or your, your wife's womb, will come the Savior of the world, who is Jesus. Paul is dating back all the way to the early parts of Genesis. Those are my ancestors, he says. He said, I can say this with a clear conscience, meaning he has conviction, with conviction. I am, he, he believes just like Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul has believed and he's been counted righteous, meaning that Jesus' righteousness has been given to Paul. If you have faith in Jesus, same is true for you. So what he's doing is he's, he's connecting his ancestry, his lineage, and he's also connecting Timothy's. See, Paul was a Jew, but Timothy was Greek. His dad was a, a non-Christian Greek Jew. And so what we see throughout the, the New Testament is that, that through Jesus Christ, Gentiles, like Timothy, become grafted in to the same legacy, the same family tree as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The whole refrain of the Old Testament is, worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In our journey through Genesis, we bang that drum, loud and clear. 
We're still doing it in the New Testament. Because if you worship Jesus, then you also worship the same God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Timothy as well. He's connected. Jesus has connected the, the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish. Faith comes through Jesus Christ alone. And Paul's displaying that. He's saying, I thank God whom I worship like my ancestors did, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. And then he says, I'm praying for you, Timothy, day and night, day and night. I constantly remember you. He wants me to know that he is praying for you, night and day. Have you ever been, have you ever told someone you're praying for them? Or as a matter of fact, have you ever been told, hey, I've been praying for you this week. And I'm really encouraged because I had a rough week. You're like, man, I had a rough weekend. And knowing that someone was praying for me is awesome. That's encouraging. So far too often, we don't let people know that we're, we're praying for them, and, and therefore they don't get to experience the, the joy of, man, someone loves me. Someone cares for me. Someone's praying for me. So Paul's writing to Timothy saying, I'm constantly praying for you day and night. This is what a, a father should do for his kids. Pray over them constantly. The spiritual father, Abraham, is praying over his spiritual son day and night. Here's the reality. You, you will pray for the things that matter most to you. And if you're the type of person that only prays when the budget's tight, what matters most to you is that, is that budget. It's that budget. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for that. What I'm saying is that there's more to life. Paul loves Timothy. Paul prays for money. Don't get me wrong. He prays for money. He asks for money. He's, he knows that the kingdom needs money to finance the mission. He's not afraid of that. But if your only prayers to, to, to God for asking for requests, for, for pleading, is for just stuff, not for people, you probably have no disciples that you're making probably don't love the people in your life very much. It's really hard to pray for people and then like hate them. It really is. You're like, I have someone I really don't like, pray for them. Pray for them. That will change you. But more than that, do the people you love, people in your community, the people who are in your spheres of influence, your family, are you, are you like Paul, praying for them constantly? Because you love them. Because you need, they need God to do something. They need God's mercy. They need God's grace. They need God's peace. They need something that you can't give them. Prayer. See, prayer is not the pregame, church. Prayer is the battle. Prayer is the war. Prayer is not something you do before you go do something. Prayer is where the battle is won or lost. Far too often think prayer is like a pregame speech that we're going to hype God up when we go take the field. That's how you pray. No wonder you belong, you're losing. No wonder. Prayer is the battle. The great Protestant reformer John Knox, it was said about his prayers by Mary, Queen of Scots, who he had fierce encounters with. She feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared all of the armies of Scotland. How are your prayers? How are your prayers? 
Are you praying so constantly that, that the most powerful leader in history or in, in, in the in the known world or your, your sphere of influence or in your life that they would be more afraid of you praying than your Facebook posts? Or your your dialogues on the internet. Are they more I say this because the this is what it means that the battle is is won or lost in prayer. See, we don't have power to change lives. You know that? I don't have power to, to motivate. Not I can motivate, maybe I don't have power to change. I don't have power. It's only the Spirit of God that has the power to change someone, to help someone, to make lasting and eternal difference. Now, what I'm not saying is just spend all your day praying and doing nothing. Here's the, it's a common, it's common reality that the people who pray are actually probably people who are doing stuff too. I've never found someone who's only praying and they don't do anything. It's the people who are praying and they, they see that God is, is victorious and that through the scriptures, through prayer, and so they're so convinced that Jesus has won the war like he has said he is, that they leave their prayer chamber, they go out into the, the day in which they're living in, and they live with a confidence and a boldness because they know the power of God. When you're praying, you're not simply just throwing up empty words, you're talking to the living God. Paul's praying for them. Additionally, he remembers his tears. So he says, he says, as he's praying, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. He wants to be with him. He remembers his tears. Scholars don't know exactly what he's referring to, but the point is, is not necessarily what tears he had, but he's, he's lived with Timothy in such a way that he's seen hard seasons that Timothy has gone through. He's seen Timothy mourning. Maybe he got to attend a funeral Timothy's been through. Maybe he's gotten to see Timothy scared and fearful of, of, of it, you know, doing the job that God has called him to. Maybe he's gotten to see Timothy uh, face harsh criticism and he's taking it real personal. Uh, whatever it is, he's seen Timothy broken and in tears. He has such a relationship with Timothy that he knows that Timothy's been through hard seasons. Some of you have been through tough seasons. Probably all of you have been through tough seasons. Some of you have been through tough seasons here. Where we've had to walk through funerals. We've had to be at hospitals. We've had to, to, to walk with individuals through, through different hardships and, or, or sin and then restoration or, or, or just, just difficult things. As Paul remembers Remembers his tears. And I want you to see this, this tenderness that comes from the Apostle to Timothy because he's been walking with him. If you find yourself bitter against Christians or, or, or bitter against church people, as, as many have in, in our world today, walk with them, talk with them, join a group, hear their story, pray with them. Oftentimes, uh, if you're not involved in the community life of a church, you don't see the suffering other people endure. You only you see from afar and you make wrong assumptions about things. How many of you that has been your story? You've seen, like, man, I met someone in... And, you know, I, after getting to know them, I was like, wow, you were not the person I thought you were. You're a real human like me. You have hardships, you have struggles. I can relate to you. But oftentimes, we're afraid of, of vulnerability. We're afraid of this type of community where people can see our tears. Maybe because we want to show that we're tough and 
we don't want to let people in. Oftentimes, ladies, because we don't trust. The same can be true for both genders. Paul remembers his tears, remembers Timothy's tears, the tough seasons. Additionally, he says, Paul wants to see Timothy. He says it's going to fill him with joy. This is a reminder to us that we're not made to live life alone. We're made for relationships. He continues, verse 5, he says, I'm reminded also, so he's reminded of a lot, of your sincere faith. He's reminded that his faith is genuine. He says he's reminded that it's, it's the faith that, first of all, your grandmother and your mother. See, Timothy's dad was likely not a Christian. He was a Greek Gentile. We see that in the Acts. We don't know if he was ever converted. But we're seeing that Paul's referring to, to Timothy's legacy to his grand, grandmother and his mother. And so some of you, that's your story. Your dad wasn't a believer. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't take you to church. He didn't go to church. He stayed home, uh, watched the Cowboys, and you got to come here and, or go to church. And, you know, uh, um, you know, that's what it was. That's what it was. Some of you have some bitterness towards your father that maybe Jesus would want you to, well, for sure, would want you to forgive. But also not just forgive, but I want you to remember the faithfulness of your mother, maybe your mother or your grandmother, faith that was that was passed on to you. It's difficult being a single mom. It's difficult being a, a, a mom who's a believer and a husband who's not. It's difficult. This is why we spend so much time focusing on, on uh, whether it be teen moms or, or single moms. We want to care for, for women in who have, who are like Timothy's mom, who are trying to pass down a legacy of faith from one generation to the next, but they don't have a believing husband in their life. So some of you, that's your story. And this, and I want you to see if you're a mom in here that being a mother has, has, has legacy impact, has impact that lasts beyond your life. The grandmother of Timothy may not get to see him, him thrive and flourish as a pastor in Ephesus. May, they may not, and there's probably not video venues at this point to put it online or YouTube. So um, uh, she can't see his sermons. She can't, she can't participate. She doesn't know. She can hear about it, perhaps. But she's had an eternal impact, a, a, a generational impact from her faith that went to her, her daughter that then went to her grandson, Timothy. See, moms, without the lens of Jesus, without the, the scope of the scriptures, to the, the see what God has done from from generation to generation, that he has not stopped and won't stop and has not ceased to build his kingdom. You can be left without hope. You can also be left feeling that motherhood is just a curse, which is so exhausting. Being a mom is often met with, un, or often full of unmet expectations. Of course, it's met with sleepless nights and crying kids, but, but now more than ever, there's a cultural pressure uh, uh, that, that we experience our mother's experience, a particular own identity, um, and who, who a mom is, and her value and worth, and, and much of society and culture will say that her worth is not in being a mother. Right? There's, no, there's little value in being a mother. There's a, there's a value in careers and climbing the ladder because, you know, if whatever a man does, a woman should do, and that's the, that's the epitome of what, a, what gender should do, whatever other people have done throughout history. We don't take our cues from the culture, we take our cues from the scriptures. Motherhood is a gift. Children are a blessing. Motherhood is a gift of cultivating, though. It's like getting a garden. It's like getting a field. It's getting a plot of land. You're like, i got to now deal with it. It's going to produce a lot of fruit. It's going to be great. And it's going to feed generations and generations. It's going to make, and it's going to produce wealth. But, but, but it, 
kids are not a blessing naturally. They've got to be cultivated. They've got to be cultivated. And so what motherhood is do, what, what mothers do in, in cultivating their children uh, is they're playing a part of, of their cultivating. Think about this. You're cultivating your mom. You're cultivating image bearers. Humans, children who are made in the image of likeness of our God. You're, you're cultivating them to worship their maker. You're teaching them to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're teaching them to do what Paul has, has his witness has been done in Timothy's life. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, Fathers and mothers are the most natural agents for God to use in the salvation of their children. I'm sure that, and, and so he's speaking about his childhood, I'm sure that in my early youth, no teaching ever made such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother. Never could it be possible for any man to estimate what uh, he owes a godly mother. Spurgeon's father was in the picture. Spurgeon's father was a preacher. He referred, and Charles Spurgeon goes on to be a preacher. But he refers to his, the instruction of his mother as being so formative to his faith and his future as a, as a Bible teacher. Throughout his autobiography, he speaks more about the prayers of his mother. Paul is talking about his own prayers here. The teaching of his mother, how she appointed him to Jesus. Of course, men, you, we, if you're new here, uh, we nail the men on this one all the time. So uh, we will continue to do that. Build men on Wednesday night, guys. You must be involved. You must be involved. It's ideal that you are involved in doing the same. But I need you ladies to understand, it's not only if you have a believing husband, it's not only his job, it's yours as well. And if you don't have a believing husband, I want you to have hope that God can, can, can work in and through your, your unideal situation. See, when the ideal is lacking, God's grace Merit favor abounds. It abounds. It's abounded to Timothy. The enemy's way of having generational impact, I want you to see this. Paul's talking about generational impact, but I want you to see that the enemy's way of having generational impact is to keep moms from enjoying and pursuing and seeing that being a mom is a ministry. If they cannot do that, then they can send them to the youth and the youth director who those don't usually don't have great track records get to, uh, you know, raise their kids. Motherhood matters. Motherhood matters. I hope you, I hope churches have great youth ministers. I hope that's awesome, but I need you to see without a great father and without a great mother, our kids are, are far too easy, far too often going to be swept away cares of the culture. And even if you only have one believing family member, you only have one, it's one of you who believe, I want you to see through Timothy to that, that there's hope, that God's grace can abound and abound and abound through you. That maybe your son, maybe your daughter will lead in the next generation a movement of God that you never could conceive if you were told to do this thing. This is a pretty awesome introduction, right? This is the divine here. So as we, we, we start marching towards the end, I want us to think about three categories that are right from this text. 
And I want these three categories to, to be informing in your mind as we study the, the rest of 2 Timothy. These categories are right here in the scripture where Paul talks about when he worships. The first question is worship. Who do you worship? Paul worshiped Jesus. Timothy worshiped Jesus. Lois worshiped Jesus. Judas worshiped Jesus. Who will you worship? Who will you worship? That's the question we all must ask. Who will you worship? And the language Paul uses when we talk about worship is not just who do you self-identify as I worship. The banner I put over my head is Jesus. Okay, awesome. So many people say they do things in Christianity, but do you worship Jesus? How does he describe it? Describe with the word that means service. Paul says, I worship the gods of my ancestors. I serve them. I serve them. Who do you serve? Would your life be marked by, I am a servant of Christ Jesus? Or is it just I'm a Christian? See, you see the difference here? We People wear the title of, I'm a Christian, without ever being mistaken for a servant of Christ. Think, oh, well, the servant of Christ is the guy who's got a ministry job, or he's got a title at a church, or, you know, he stands up on stage with the Bible. That's, that's a servant. No. A servant is a worshiper. Who do you serve? Who do you worship? Who is your life built around? How do you view, does Jesus affect how you view your money? Does Jesus affect how you view your, your family? Does Jesus affect how you view your life? Does Jesus affect how you view your sexuality? Uh, how you view your gender? How you view your life? How you view everything? Is Jesus the center of your life or is he an add-on? I need you to know that if he is an add-on, it's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. Some of you might need to give your life to Jesus for the very first time today. You've been walking, you've been in church your whole life. But Jesus has been an add-on to your life. He's not been your Lord. He hasn't been your King. He's just been someone you prayed to that kept you from the pits of hell. And now you want to, you know, you're just glad you have any in your pocket for a rainy day. To pull Jesus out and let everyone know that I'm part of that team. Worship him. Do you worship him? Like Abraham did. When Abraham worshiped, what did he do? He obeyed. When Abraham, how do we see Abraham worshiping him? He sacrificed. He gave his whole life. It's amazing to watch other religions and see how they their whole entire life, even the aesthetics of their home and how they do everything, is centered around the false gods they worship. May that never be said among us. That Jesus is simply an atom. But he is the only God, the one God, the Savior, the, the extender of grace, mercy, and peace. We worship him. And therefore, we are going to build our, our lives around worship. How have you structured your life? Is it structured around the God you worship? Well, I'll tell you this. It is. Your life is already structured around the God you worship. My question is, does it need to be restructured around the Lord Jesus Christ? If that's you, I want you, I want you to make a commitment today, this fall, that you're going to be all in. You're going to be all in to Jesus. You're going to, you're going to reorganize your, your life. You're going to reorganize your time. You're going to reorganize your, your talent, what you do in your life. You're going to reorganize your treasure, your money, your stuff, your, your everything. You're going to reorganize your life to worship Jesus. And the first thing you do is just continue to be involved, but you're going to, you're going to work, work with you to help reorganize your life. To where Jesus is at the center. If you have questions about that, ask for help. 
Ask for help. Additionally, we want you to be all in, 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 not just in God's word, but in community as well. And then also in relationships. Invest in relationships that you already have. Some of those relationships may be in your home, husband to wives. You know, wives to husband, you all need to invest in your marriage. You invest in your kids' relationship. What relationships do you need to invest in to help one another worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also Paul, and also Lois, and also Eunice, and also Timothy? Will you do that? Will you commit to that? Will you worship the God of the Bible? Next, will you pray? Prayer. Prayer. That's clear that that's a center thrust of, of Paul's introduction to Timothy, that he's praying for him constantly, night and day. Will you pray for those that you are investing in? See, see what I did there? So you gotta, you're worshiping Jesus and therefore investing in others. And then if you're actually doing that, then pray for them. You can't do the first part if you don't do the, you can't do the second part if you don't do the first part. Invest in the people in your life. And as you're investing in them, pray for them. Pray for them. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom in how to love them, how to care for them, how to serve them, how to, how to give, how, how to just ask God. And then do it. It's, then ask God maybe for strength. Maybe ask God to, for sacrifice. Maybe ask God for a good attitude. Maybe we all need that. God, give us a good attitude. And then go to battle in prayer. If you cannot do this, you do not go to battle in prayer. Don't expect to go out into the, the, the craziness of life with confidence. When you do battle in prayer, you walk out with confidence because God is with you. You know that. He already is. But oftentimes we forget that we're reminded of that in the posture of prayer. We're told also by the, by the, the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon, he says this, when you plead, he's talking about spiritual warfare and prayer, when you plead the name of Christ, you plead with that which shakes the gates of hell. Plead. Beg God. Ask Him for what you need. Ask Him for grace, mercy, and peace for those around, for, for those around you. Ask Him for that same for you to understand the grace, mercy, and peace that's in Jesus and then to transform you. Plead with God this fall. Will you do that? And lastly, would you think in the category, not just of worship, not just of prayer, but in legacy and financial future? Would you think about that? No matter who you are, you have, you, have, you have days, hours, years, hopefully, left on earth. What are you going to do with that time? Are you going to invest it in the kingdom? Are you going to be like Timothy, the Paul telling Timothy, continue to endure? See, everyone, especially young people today, they want change now. We have a lot of young people here. You want change now. You want change today. But few people will press forward when change is on the internet. Everyone will jump on the board when they think change is happening tomorrow. We're going to be involved and we'll be a part of this movement and change is happening tomorrow and, and we'll get involved because, you know, Everyone's going that direction and it's really easy to jump on the bandwagon and then we, we are so for that change. A few people, few people, and it's really the real change makers will press forward when change is incremental. That's the storyline of the Bible. Incremental change, slow and steady growth, faithfulness over the course of time. A seed that, that grows into a tree is often, it's first a small, small seed. It has to be, the land has to be tilled, and then it has to be planted, then there has to be sufficient water, and then the tree begins to grow. We oftentimes want the tree to, uh, in our life, metaphorically speaking, 
and the things of God just happen, change to happen tomorrow. We want to just export trees from all over, from other, other, other forests into our life and plant them in and just look at it. We've done it. See, here's the reality. You can't take something oftentimes from another a soil and put it into just any soil and any terrain. God wants to use you to, to plant seeds, unique seeds, not just in your life, but in the relationships in your lives, and the people in your lives. And he wants the, you to water it. He wants, to, you, he wants you to tend to it. He wants you to, to, to put into discipline and time so that fruit can be born from your labor. And so I want us, you to think about what we're doing here at the well. If you're new with us and you're, you're joining us, what we're doing here is we're planting a culture, a kingdom culture. It's not just a church. It's a culture. It's that we're taking the you know, we're taking our cues from the culture of heaven, and we're bringing it down to earth to be lived out in a contextual way, and with real lives and real people. Because Jesus taught us to pray, "Your will be done, O God, on earth as it is in heaven." And we believe that we're on earth right now, and we believe that heaven is is a place where we're, we're headed. So on earth as it is in heaven, we're to live out the will of God today, now, not waiting for that. We're to, to build a church that has a kingdom culture, not, a, not, not a, a modern contemporary culture. We are culture creators, not culture consumers. So we're a kingdom-minded people. And we're to be a city that Jesus says on a hill that cannot be hidden that's reflecting the glory of God. And we're playing the long game. Playing the long game. Planting seeds, we're watering seeds, we're, we're investing time, we're investing energy, and, we're, and we're, we're banking on Jesus to fulfill a promise that he gave. We, we are utterly confident that we will succeed. Why? Because Jesus tells us in John 15 that it's the Father's will that you bear much fruit. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we have, we're investing in, in Christ's kingdom, which will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. And so we just ask and just beg and plead. And just let us be a part of it. And so I want to ask you, you, you this. If you don't see great change in your lifetime, if you, if it, what, what, what might happen is we might not see great change in our lifetime. But if we don't see great change in our lifetime, we can build and rebuild in such a way that our great-grandkids see great change in their lifetime. This is the kingdom mindset that's willing to, to plant, plow, water, sow until Jesus comes back knowing that it is we who plant and water but God who causes Period. I believe our day is something like the day of Nehemiah. If the time of an offer, what, but now I have blind blind. Forgive me if I go we're in a day that I believe that's like Nehemiah. Nehemiah's day, where he has been commissioned, he's been commissioned to go rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a city that's been laid to waste. The church in America has been laid to waste. It's full of consumerism, it's full of entertainment, it's full of, full of worldly ideologies and false teachings. Now I'm not knocking every church, I'm just saying the thrust of American Christianity it's just a knockoff version of the real thing. People don't have anything to do with it. That's why they're here. They didn't, get, they didn't have a real Jesus, so they're going to go worship another God. And so people are not just leaving the faith. They're, they're now rebelling against the faith. And so what we're doing is we're rebuilding, not just us, but churches in 
this day and age, we're rebuilding in the, the ash heap of a culture that is crumbling. Rome is going to crumble. Timothy is building a church in a culture that's about to crumble. And so, I want you to think. I want you to think about your life, your legacy, your lineage, your future. Will there be men and women following in your wake? knowing, loving, and trusting Jesus because you do. Additionally, will you go and be a part of the rescue crew and help people who are fleeing from Christ come back to Christ? Who are headed off into an eternity where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and bring them into a culture, a kingdom, a family that has the promise of Will you play a part of seeing, uh, building a foundation, which is Christ Jesus in the city that your grandkids, your great-grandkids, and your, your great-great-grandkids can see the fruit and enjoy the fruit of your labor? Will you labor knowing that there's great confidence in Christ Jesus to do this work, whether you see the fruits of it or not? Will you labor in the ash heap of the rubble, building and rebuilding, fighting and contending? Will you just sit and wait for Jesus to come back and not play a part of anything that Christ has called you to? That's your choice. We are not, hear me this, we are not rebuilding an old version of American Christian, Christianity. What we are building is an ancient virgin, version, an ancient version of heaven's culture. We're rebuilding something that began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're, rebuild, we're rebuilding towards the promise that, that God gave Eve in Genesis 3. We're, we're, we're building upon the foundations that are revealed through the scriptures, the foundation of Christ Jesus. We are, we are building on the, on the foundation of God's word where Jesus is the authority, where he is the king. We are where he is the foundation, and therefore we will contend for this faith that was once delivered to the saints until he returns. My question to you is, will you continue? Will you continue? Will you endure? Will you build? Those are the, the framework we want us to think through as we study this book. This is the framework Paul has laid for Timothy and has laid for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for, for who you are. You are a great God. You're, you're a great king. You've rescued us from sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And you've brought us into your family. And you've given us a mission, a new hope, a new life. May we continue your mission here on earth, reflecting your kingdom um, and your reign. May we worship you with our whole hearts and our minds and give our lives to your service. May we be men and women of prayer who beg and plead with you to do the things that you, that, that you promised that you would do. May we be the people who leave behind us a legacy that points to Jesus, a lineage of, of those who know, love, and trust you, Jesus. And then may there be a future uh, that maybe we see, but maybe those who go after us see of, of the presence of, of God expressed in the, the people of God that is spread through the cultures on earth that, that, reflect, that, that reflect heaven, that look where people can taste and see the Lord's goodness. Would you bless us to that end? Holy Spirit, would you help us? We love you, Jesus. Praise your name.